You're listening to the audio sermon podcast of First Baptist Church of Marble Falls, Texas. For almost 130 years, FBCMF has served Marble Falls and the greater Highland Lakes area faithfully through children's programs, youth activities, and adult discipleship. We invite you to join us each and every Sunday morning at 9 and 10.30 a.m. for deep fellowship, rich worship, and a spirit-filled message. For those who find themselves unable to attend on a Sunday morning, we stream those services. Simply visit fbcmf.live during either of our service times to view it. Never miss an archived sermon by subscribing to our podcast on either SoundCloud or iTunes. And to learn more about our church or watch a video version of this and other sermons, please visit us online at fbcmf.org. All right, everyone, I, I would like for you to picture this, that every single day we are building a church. And what we are going to be tomorrow is completely dependent on what we build right now. And the things that's going to help us to build well right now is by understanding the things that God says to us in His Word. And what we're going to do is look at Paul's letter to the church in Philippi so that we can see what he says to them, so that by understanding that and taking it to heart, that we're going to build the right kind of church and that we're going to be the right kind of people. And so welcome this morning to the first sermon in our series, Building a Philippian Church. Many Bible scholars feel that, that Paul's heart for the Philippians was, was huge. They, they feel that, it, that the Philippian church was Paul's very favorite of all of the churches. And he does seem to write his letter with more affection, more compassion, and heart than he does any of his other letters. There is something special about the Philippian people that just made Paul happy. It may have been because they never really uh, bailed on Paul when other Christians and other churches would bail on Paul. They, the people in Philippi never did. It might, though, be because they were very generous, even though they were in poverty, and they gave, and they helped, and they cared about other people very, very generously. That could be it, and that's the reason that that this church made Paul very happy. But it could be just a mixture of all of these types of things. But whatever it was, in verse 8 in chapter 1 in Philippians, Paul says, As God is my witness, I long for all of you with the affection of Jesus Christ. And he doesn't speak that way about any of the other churches that he writes to. Philippians is just a short book. Four chapters is all it is, but 16 times in just four chapters, he uses the word kara, which is the Greek word for joy. He, he tells them things like, every time I pray for you, I'm always filled with joy. 16 times, joy this and rejoice that. And in fact, if you were to go home and read the entire book of Philippians when you get home, the overwhelming feeling that you would get when you read it, read it is one of joy. You would just feel joyous after you read this. And the remarkable thing about this is he writes about joy over and over again, even though he is in prison. That's the remarkable thing about this. My assumption is that there aren't many things that give you joy when you're in prison. That's what I assume. I, I thought that I was going to spend a night in jail one time. Um, did I ever tell you all about that? I, I didn't tell the search committee. I can tell you that. <laughs> I, I thought I was going to have to. Um, I was a freshman in high school, Port Isabel High School, way down in the valley. Me and a lot of my friends, um, we were looking for a group of sophomores so that we could 
throw eggs at them. And some of the eggs landed where it shouldn't. And, and the police started coming after us. And, 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 and at one point, they found us. All of my friends, man, we all just started running from them. We're just running, diving into bushes. Some people diving into the bay. We're at Port Isabel, you know. And, and so I'm running too. My situation, though, is I had just broken my ankle and I was on crutches. And, and while, while I was the quickest guy in my high school on crutches, a, a cop with two good feet caught me pretty quickly. So they take me into the police station and I am beginning to contemplate, as they say, we're going to call your dad. And I thought, my dad's going to say, leave him there. Let him stay. And so I started looking around and I'm thinking, I may have to spend the night here. I may have to spend the week here. And, and even though it was a nice jail, it, was, it wasn't bad. I think they had recently done a renovation. Um, I mean... Fresh paint on the walls, it smelled nice. Even though all of that was true, I remember the, my reality is there was nothing joyous about that situation. Nothing. How does 16 times Paul say, I rejoice, I rejoice, I'm filled with joy? While he is in prison, while he is chained up. That's the remarkable thing about Philippi. In Philippians, as he is writing this, and the reason for the joy is he has this deep memory and he begins to remember the Christians in Philippi, they're the reasons for his joy. He remembers their relationship with him and he remembers, uh, he has these memories of being with them. And it is a great letter because even though Paul is in prison, he has this memory of these people and he writes them this very loving kind of letter. Now, if any of you have ever wanted to know the Bible a little bit more clearly and understand it, I'm telling you, this sermon series is going to help you some. We're going to go through each chapter as we culminate with Easter so that we can understand it. And at the end of this, you're going to know, if you come to these sermons and, and you listen to it, you're going to know a lot more about the Bible and you're going to know a lot more about Philippians. What were the people like there? What did they think about Jesus? What was their culture like when, when Paul began to talk about these things? What, were, what was the pushback that, that Paul might have gotten from these people when they said, no, we don't believe that? What was going on there? And why did the gospel kind of take off so quickly in this town? You're going to be able to talk about all of this, guys. You're going to know this book, and you're going to feel very competent in, in teaching it to your kids, and talking about it with your grandkids, you're going to feel good about it, and you're going to know it. Even though some of you may know very, very little about the Bible, you're going to know Philippians by the time this is finished. And I believe that it will help you personally as well. It's going to help you personally because we're going to take the characters and the plot and, and the context of this church in Philippi, and we're going to use all of that as a lens to look at our own lives and reflect on what it means for the gospel of Jesus to really impact our own lives. And so, all right, where are we? Uh, we're not in Jerusalem anymore. We're not in the Holy Land anymore. This is Greece, and it's like a, a tornado uh, picked up Paul and 
set him down in a very different place and everything went from black and white to color and he looks down at his dog and he says, we're not in Jerusalem anymore. He had never been here before. It's a different world for Paul. He had crossed over now into modern day Europe. He has traveled from the Holy Land all the way up through modern Turkey, across the Aegean Sea, which is a kind of a huge um, part of the Mediterranean, and now he is in northern Greece, and he finds himself in the town of Philippi. Philippi had existed for many, many, many uh, centuries, but it existed under different names. But in 356 BC, there was a man named Philip of Macedon. He is Alexander the Great's father. And he comes and he fortifies the city. And he puts a lot of money and he puts a lot of work into the town of Philippi. So after he finishes fortifying it, he really likes Philippi. So Philip of Macedon thinks, I'm going to rename this town. And he doesn't name it after his wife, doesn't name it after, you know, his children. He thinks, my name's Philip. Philippi. And so he renames it, and that's how it, it got the name. Um, there is no city there today. If any of you were to go to Philippi and look for it, you're not going to find it. But what you will find is ruins of Philippi. Um, and here's what it looks like. Here is one of the ruins of Philippi. If you go, isn't that pretty, though? Look at the mountain in the background. That's one of the downtown areas of Philippi. If you were to go on a, um, a tour of the um, journeys of the Apostle Paul, and you were to go through Turkey and go up through um, Greece, you, you would probably go to this place. And this is Philippi, and you could walk around and pray where the Apostle Paul prayed and be where he was. Um, here is another uh, um, scene. This is another ruin of Philippi. And this is the jail where people think that Paul was actually in jail when he sang with, with Silas, and, and there was an earthquake, and God you know, broke him free, and the Philippian jailer came and falls down. They think that this right here is the jail. When you go into it, there are lots of, of little rooms, and it goes way down deep. And so this is the only place, based on the ruins, where they think this really might have been the jail where, where Paul was. But if you go there today and you're looking for the nearest town, the nearest town to these ancient Philippi ruins is this town. This is Kavala, and this is right on the sea. It's about 10 miles from, from Philippi. Don't you want to go there? It's, it's very, very pretty. Um, maybe our church can go there and we can stay in these hotels and then we can go up and pray over in Philippi. It can be fun and spiritual and everything. Um, all right, Philippi. Things went along pretty normal, pretty typical as usual in Philippi. There was some gold mines outside of town and that brought in commerce into the city. They were also pretty close to the shipping ports, and so they had the shipping and, and fishing industry, and that brought in some money as well. But one of the main things that helped Philippi do really well was it was strategically on this road called the Via, um, Eg, uh, the Via Egnatia, and uh, it was a huge road. It's kind of like the I-35 of, of Eastern Europe, and, uh, and when you are perfectly situated, when your town is right on a major highway, you're really going to be pretty successful. And so Philippi was successful. But the thing that, that gave Philippi the most prominence and brought in the biggest population boon was a huge battle that had happened there. Um, there was a huge battle called the Battle of Philippi. And what had happened was the Romans had conquered the Greeks, and the, the leader of all of Rome was a man named Julius Caesar. 
And so he was in charge of everything, but then his own friends, his own people came and they assassinated him. And one of the people who assassinated him was a man named Brutus. And if any of you have read Shakespeare's Julius Caesar, you remember that when Brutus kills um, Julius Caesar, it just kind of breaks Caesar's heart and he just, he dies. And so what happens is, just like it is in every coup, in every overthrow of a government, there's going to be a, a power vacuum and people are going to try to figure out who's going to be in charge now. So Brutus wants to be in charge, and he teams up with a man named Cassius. And they form an alliance to try to take over all of Rome. Well, Julius Caesar's son, a man named Octavian, he teams up with a man named Mark Anthony. And Octavian and Mark Anthony, they form an alliance. And so it's the alliance of Octavian and Mark Anthony fighting against the alliance of Brutus and uh, Cassius. And they fight all over Rome. But then it comes down to this huge, huge battle. And this is the deciding battle of who is going to take over all of Rome. And guess where the huge battle is? It's Philippi. The Battle of Philippi, and after the battle is over, many of the soldiers who lived through that battle, they stayed there. And the reason that this is relevant is because when Paul shows up to Philippi, some of the soldiers who fought in the Battle of Philippi, they're still living, they're still there, their children are still there. And that battle has played a significant role in the culture of what this city is. Uh, in the battle, Octavian and um, um, uh, Mark Anthony, they soundly defeat Brutus and Cassius. Um, a number of years ago, uh, National Geographic made a movie about the Battle of Philippi. And so I'm going to show you a clip from that. Men, if you have ever wanted to see a war movie in church, here we go. Here's Brutus and Cassius. Heavens, I entirely forgot. Today's your birthday, isn't it? Is it? I believe you're right. Happy birthday. It's like there's no cake. Next year, eh? You bet me an extra big one. I shan't forget. No cinnamon. Makes me sneeze. Here's the other side. If you need to urinate, now would be the time. I'm fine, thank you. Sure? Let us begin then. Watch closely, boy. This is how history is made. Now, let's have some fun. Sorry, rude of me. Do you like the honor? No, no. You do it by all means. Thank you. 
It has been an honor and a pleasure leading you. And I am sorry we could not do better. But you must look to yourselves now. Save your skins. Sir. Give my best to my mother. Tell her. Something suitable. Guess who won that little fight? And that's how Brutus dies. Um, here's why we, we, we need to look at it and to see it. There's something important to understand. When we read Scripture, we are talking about real people. They are living. They are raising families. They are defending their country. They are worshiping their gods, and they are dying. They are not ignorant. They are not primitive. They are what they are for their place and time. And it's in the middle of this that Paul, a simple missionary from Judea, walks into that land, and he tells them that there is good news in the world and that that good news is Jesus Christ. And the town was never the same again after Paul arrived. Octavian... And Mark Anthony won that battle, and then Octavian becomes the emperor of everything, everything in Rome, and he changes his name to Caesar Augustus. And he names Philippi because Philippi was the place where he had had that decisive victory. He renames it a Roman colony, and he calls it Colonia Julia Augusta Philippensis. And it became a popular place, and, and uh, the, it had the same status as any other city in Italy. And the people in that city were given special tax breaks, and so the soldiers stayed there. And when Paul arrived, 
There were about 15,000 people who lived there, and they worshipped all kinds of gods. They had the, the Greek gods that they worshipped and the mythology, and they had little local gods that they worshipped as well. But the religion that was the most prominent was emperor worship. And by the time Paul got there, the emperor was named Claudius. And in everywhere you looked, it would have the presence of Claudius everywhere, the gates that you would come in and out of. It would say Claudius everywhere they would see it. You would see it on coins. You would see it in processions. You would see it in games and feasts and pictures and inscriptions. Paul would have been inundated and surrounded by the presence of Emperor Claudius. Rome and its power is everywhere in this city everywhere. And, and so I, we need to get this. If Paul is going to take the gospel into such a place like that, it's going to require more than human effort, don't you think? A simple person like Paul standing up to the legions and the history and everything it is, he doesn't even know. He's never been there in his whole life. It, it, it needed more than a good team it needed more than a good strategy for the gospel to make it. It was going to take something far greater than a bunch of talented people or even passionate people. For the gospel to succeed in a place like Philippi, it was going to take the, the legitimate hand of God. There was no other way it was going to work. And so in Acts 16, this is how Paul gets there, uh, gets to Philippi. Philippi is not on his trip itinerary, but he is going to wind up there anyway, and this is how it happens. Show the big, the big map for a moment. Okay, right here is uh, the Holy Land, right there. So Paul is here, and uh, of course right here, here's Egypt. I mean, um, all of Africa, and then Egypt. And right in here is the Middle East. Okay, um, all of this is Europe. And, uh, and so here we are. Here's, here's where we are right here. Paul is going to sail across this Aegean Sea. And, of course, over here is England. I'm trying to give you all a big blown-up kind of picture. You can see where we are. Now, go, go to the next one. Go to the next picture. Okay, we're going to look very closely now just at the Holy Land and how Paul got there. So Paul begins doing ministry. He's sent out from this place of Antioch. And then he goes. His first missionary journey was all through this. This is modern-day Turkey called Galatia at that point in time, and, uh, and he does ministry all throughout here. And then he gets to this little place right here, right here, and it's this Troas. And when he is in Troas, he has this dream in the middle of the night that a man from Macedonia, which is the region of Philippi, a person from Philippi, begins calling out to him saying, please, we need your help. We, we need your help, Paul. And so what Paul does is he, he talks about this dream with all of his team the very next morning, and they say, well, God must be leading us. God's calling us to go. And they had never been before, but now they're going to leave this area, and they're going to sail across, and they're going to come right here to Philippi, and then they're going to travel all the way down this way, down to Corinth and down to Athens. But it all starts right here in Philippi. The first Christians, everything that begins in Europe happens right here in this place. And when they're there, there is something we need to get, uh, that they're in uncharted territory. The normal way of doing things may not work anymore. And for Paul, the question is this, would the gospel of Jesus Christ work the same way here in Greece as it worked in Jerusalem and in Galilee? 
Would the story be compelling to these people, our story that a Jewish carpenter was nailed to a cross and he died, but he rose again? Would they get it? Would they understand it? Or is this a story that only Jewish people are going to be able to get? And so he doesn't know. The people in Philippi are very, very different. They're different, and and Paul, Paul understood how to take the gospel to the places in Turkey. He understood how to take it where there is a strong Jewish population, but he doesn't know how these new people are going to respond, and he is out of his element. He doesn't know what's going to happen. There is a book called Church on the Other Side, and the author is Brian McLaren, and he describes how today Christians are very similar to that, that we are out of our element too today. We're not out of our element geographically. We're not out of our element um, with the land that we're living in. But he says that society has changed. And things are different. I've often wondered myself a little bit, would the gospel of Jesus Christ work here? Meaning, how will people respond to the gospel of Jesus Christ in this new postmodern era that we're living in? And um, occasionally I meet people and it makes me wonder. This past Friday I went to the hospital because we had a member of our church who was um, having heart surgery. He was at Austin Heart and uh, I was with his family as they were doing surgery on him. And um, when he was in for surgery, another woman showed up, and she came in to where we were sitting, and we were all alone in, in our section of the waiting room, but this one woman came in, and she was crying. She was scared, and she was all alone. There was nobody else with her. And so I'm there with one family, but she comes in and sits about 15 feet from me, and, and she's just sobbing. And so you can put two and two together. A woman comes in and she's crying and she's in a heart hospital where people are doing heart surgery all the time. And, and what's happening is somebody that she loves very much just had a heart attack, probably. And she's there all alone trying to deal with, with all of that. And so I see her and I wait for just a few minutes and, and I feel like God wants me to go up to her and, and, and talk to her and just pray for her. I'm not going to get in her way. All I want to do is pray for her. So I walk up to her and very, very gently, I, I say, Hi, um, I'm a pastor in Marble Falls, and uh, would you like for me to pray for you? But before I could even get finish the sentence, as soon as I said, I'm a pastor in Marble Falls, would you like for me to pray for you? She got mad, and she put her, her hand out as if to say, You don't take another step toward me. And she put her hand out and she goes, you stay there. And she said, no. And uh, I said, all right. And, uh, and I turned around and I, I walked away. There was a time when very few people would have turned down a prayer at a moment when they were in need. There was a time There was a time when few people would have been that belligerent or that mad for somebody just saying, could I say a prayer for you? You see, but we've sailed over to the other side. We've sailed over the Aegean Sea, and we're we're, we're not in the normal land anymore. We're out of our element, and people are a little bit different. And so the question that Paul was dealing with as he came into Philippi is the same question that the church in the United States is dealing with today, and that is, could the gospel work even here? Could it even work in this new era that we're finding ourselves in now because we have sailed over to the other side? And I believe that the only way that the gospel is going to work in this era and in this land 
is the same way that it worked in the moment of Philippi. And I'll show you how it worked. Look at this on the screen, Acts chapter 16, verse 10. And, I'm, and as we look at this, look for the common denominator in all of it. It says, after Paul had seen the vision, okay, he's back in Troas right here. He's going to see this vision calling him over. We got ready at once to leave for Macedonia, and we concluded that God, that God called us to go preach the gospel to them. So he goes over because God is leading him. He starts preaching the gospel of Jesus Christ, but nobody is responding. He's there. He's in the synagogues. Nobody is responding yet. After several days, he goes out by the gates of the city, and there's a river, and he starts talking to a bunch of women, and here's what the text says in chapter 16, 14. One of those listening was a woman named Lydia, a dealer in purple cloth from the city of Thyatira, who was a worshiper of God, and it says this, and the Lord opened her heart. God opened her heart to respond to Paul's message. After this, Paul is put in prison. And then look what happens in uh, verse 26. Suddenly, there was such a violent earthquake that the foundations of the prison were shaken. And at once, all the prison doors flew open and everybody's chains came loose. Do you see the common denominator in all of it? There is only one church builder here. Only one. God gave the dream. God opened Lydia's heart, and God brought the earthquake. He did all of it from the beginning to the end. The only, when we read about what God does in the Christian movement in Philippi, the only logical conclusion that we can come to is that there is no other way that the gospel will speak except by the power of God. That's it. If lives are ever going to be transformed in this era that we're living in, in a postmodern movement where people don't want prayer and where people are reluctant to hear, if God will move here and transform people's lives, the victory will not be ours. It will be God's alone. And it won't be because of me. And it won't be because we are talented. It will because, be because Jesus Christ and his spirit shows up and he moves powerfully. And that's how the gospel takes hold. And that's how it takes hold in any of your lives as well. It's not because of a song that we sing or a message that you hear. It's because Jesus Christ and his spirit beckons your heart and he convinces you that the story is true and worth giving your life to. And that's when people start to move forward. And when God starts to be the the author and the mover of the gospel, then we see an amazing thing that a huge fire can be started by a very small spark. When Paul began doing ministry in this foreign place, it was a small spark. Only two families, two poor families responded to the gospel. A woman named Lydia and her family. She sells cloth. And then there's a jail keeper, blue-collar worker, minimum wage guy. Not much to his name and his family. And that's it, two families. Neither family have much money, neither family have much influence. It's not like Paul led the mayor to the Lord, the city council people. He didn't lead the chief of police. It was simply the lowest on the totem pole. That's who came to know the Lord, just two. It doesn't sound like very much to me, but they had God. And when you're on God's side, you always have the advantage. 
And in Matthew 18, 20, it says this, where two or more are gathered in my name, right there I'm going to be. Right there. So these two families come together, Lydia and a nameless jailer, and God is there. Paul leaves. He's gone. But there is something that begins to happen between those two families without any help from anybody else, no preachers, no theology, no Sunday school classes, but the Holy Spirit is there. And it starts to work and it starts to move with just two families. With these two families, a movement breaks out and for 700 years, Philippi was driven by the love of Jesus Christ. Paul compares every church that he is at to the love that these people have. He tells the Corinthian people, be more like the Philippians. He tells the people in Jerusalem, you're getting this gift. Why? Because the Philippians sent it to you and they sent it to you when they're in poverty. It was the Philippians that were moving because the Spirit of God was moving amongst them with just two of them. Today, you and I, the only way we will be successful is if God moves the same way. And it only takes two. But as I look around, I, I, I wonder, what could God do with all of us? What could he do that was great when all of us follow him with, with, with the fullness of our hearts, when you try the very best that you can, when you give everything you can to the Lord? What could God do with all of us who are following him wholeheartedly? Let's find out. Let's find out. And let's see, if God can do all of that with two people so that thousands of years later, you and I are studying and being impacted by something started with two families, then what could happen if we allowed God to work in all of our lives in that same way? Let's find out. You've been listening to the audio sermon podcast of First Baptist Church of Marble Falls, Texas. Never miss an archived sermon by subscribing to our podcast on either SoundCloud or iTunes. And to learn more about our church or watch a video version of this and other sermons, please visit us online at fbcmf.org.